three-word punch in the face that I want you to get is this. Principles lead vision. We've got to get that into our head. Principles lead vision. It's the thing that if I were to sneak into your house in the middle of the night, I won't do this. But if I were to, if I were to poke you, what I want you to sit up saying is principles lead vision. I want that in you. And the reason is many groups cannot resist the appeal of developing vision apart from principles. And so vision is exciting. It says we're going to build, we're going to do, but short of principles behind it, vision can go sideways really quick. What happens if we put all of our effort into working together and accomplishing a vision that is really hard, but once we get it done, we realize we all did it for different reasons? Unprincipled vision has destroyed people. There's a thin sliver between unprincipled vision and just blind ambition. And so vision is important, but the principles behind vision are bedrock. The five principles that we've talked about, and we've talked about these way back when we first started, back in the day when we were all on Zoom and you didn't know I was short. You were shocked. You got here in real life. You're like, oh, my word. He's not half the man I thought he was. No. You know, he's, back in the early days of Zoom, we talked about these, but we realized we hadn't revisited them in a long time. So I just wanted to circle back because many of you were, were not a part of that, and I want you to realize that when vision develops, oh, it comes out of these principles. Five real quick, and I'm going to recap real quick, and then we'll move on. The belief the gospel has the power to change lives. Talked about it two weeks ago. We don't have to just cope. We can overcome. We might overcome in a moment. We might overcome over a lifetime of battling with something. But we were meant to struggle and to overcome difficulties. When they were back up against the Red Sea, by the order of the Lord, Moses said to the people, the Egyptians you see today, you shall never see again. He didn't say we're not going to fight the rest of our lives. They did. They fought the rest of their lives. But it was, he's like, we're going to settle this score here. The gospel has the power to change lives. The second principle we talked about last week was the principle of sending, sending missionaries, sending people to represent us. It is part and parcel of being in a relationship with Jesus. Jesus said, as the Father sent me, I am sending you. And too often churches lean back from sending because it is costly. When you send people, you lose people. You lose finances. You lose momentum. But as a principle, we will send our best and we will trust God to make up the difference. It pleases the Lord and what he's about to do, we don't want to neglect this practice of sending. And we're not going to delay until we have people to spare. That's actually insulting to the Lord. God did not have a son to spare. And he sent his son. And we look at sending and we're like, I don't know if we can afford that. Jesus, you know, God says, you think I can afford it? You think I had two boys and sent you one? He sent. And so we're going to be a sending church. The third principle is the exercise of vibrant community. We're going to talk about that more at length this morning. The fourth principle is the idea of keeping our eyes to the future. The now that you are in can only be lived well and correctly if we have some understanding of what is coming. If we don't understand what is coming, we are waiting in the wings of history and we have no idea how to respond. Think about it this way. If it is 8 p.m. at your house and you realize there is no milk, you are facing a morning with dry Cheerios, right? 
Like, I know that. It's 8 o'clock. If I don't do something here, if cereal is important to you, you got to do something at 8 o'clock to have the future be any different. It is 10 p.m. on the earth, and the church is out of milk. We are not ready for what is coming. Might even be closer to 11. So we're going to talk about it. We're going to prepare our hearts for it. We're going to get oil for ourselves so that we can maintain our walk with the Lord through difficult times. We're going to have some sort of understanding what is coming to the future. We are not going to live life looking out the side window of our car and just looking at the culture and just looking at where we are. We're going to look to the future. The fifth one is the idea of the rhythm of prayer. We're going to touch a little bit on prayer today because it ties in deeply with community in a way that some of you have never really put it together. We're going to talk about that, and we're going to talk about it in a few weeks a little more. You are not in any real level of Christian community if you have no one to pray with. Like, if you don't have somebody that you can call and say, hey, can you pray with me, you're actually missing out a significant part of body life, and I would say probably destined to struggle. For too long, prayer has been considered a subculture in the church. Little old ladies, Saturday afternoons in the basement, that's where we kept our intercessors. And where the church needs to go, the church as a whole, but the church local, the bridge, is to become a praying entity. Oh, we have some services as well, but really the engine of the thing is prayer. Today, Let's talk about the exercise of vibrant community. Now, when you think about the exercise of vibrant community, I want to hold up a principle that the Christian life is lived with one another, that the Lone Ranger is not your patron saint, and we need each other not just to be a good church, but we actually need each other to be the best us that we are. Three key words in this idea of exercising vibrant community. What do you think the first one is? Exercise, you're brilliant, absolutely. There's only a couple words in the whole phrase. Exercise, it acknowledges that it takes effort. Our culture was designed and is increasingly being geared towards the idea of isolation. There is almost nothing that you cannot get delivered to your home. You don't need to interact, and the pandemic just catered to that. And we complain about being isolated, and we feel bad because we don't have friends, but we adjusted. And it's easier not to go and not to do when we're convinced that we can stay home and just be what we are. And changing this idea that we can, don't have to interact or we don't have to exercise the muscle of community, changing that idea is real work. When we talk about community, I don't want to pretend that it happens without effort. I don't want to tell you we're going to roll out some grand plan for community and it's going to be instant. It's going to be so easy. All you have to do is show up. No. Some people actually resent the hard work of community. And they say things like, well, I just want the community to be organic. I love that idea, but go ask an organic farmer how much work that is. Like, it takes effort. And it takes effort to connect with people. Yet it's part of what we're called to do. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting the meeting together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That scripture was used to pound on people to tell them they got to come back to church after the pandemic. That is a minimizing and a narrow-minded understanding of what that scripture means. 
To gather together, it doesn't just mean in a corporate setting. It means putting forth the effort of being in each other's lives so you can stir one another to love and good works, encourage one another, not as in the habit of some who withdraw. Don't dumb that down to mean Sunday morning church. There are millions of people sitting in church together failing to stir one another to love and good works. They're just sitting in rows. They thought, well, I I found this church and I, I thought I would go there and I thought we'd find community. You never find community. You always build it. You always build it. So there is an exercise element of vibrant community. And in that exercise vibrant community, the next key word would be? Vibrant. Oh, wow, you worried me. Thank you. Okay, some of you got it. Exercise, vibrant. Vibrant in the idea of being full of energy and enthusiasm. There is a reason the church is jokingly called the frozen chosen. But it's not just in our walk with God. It's actually in relation to one another. We live similar, parallel, but very separate lives. And as long as things are going well, no blood, no foul. As long as everything is good in your life, you are not that bothered that you can come and sit and li- sit with people in a room who you don't really know, leave, never see them again, come back. It's all good. Stay on your side of the aisle. They stay on theirs. Greet at the howdy and shake time. And you're done. But behind the scenes, there's all kinds of blood. There's all kinds of fouls in our lives. Yet when we get to church, in the five minutes that we have to orchestrate to make sure that people meet one another, we ask people, how are you? And they say... Fine. I had no doubt you were going to miss that line. Because you've told me you're fine. I've told you I'm fine. It's the go-to. How are you? Fine. If you ask them again, what's the second word? Busy. Whole world's fine and busy. No, they're not. But we don't know that because we limit community to the idea of this kind of setting and no interaction, one another, no, no messing with one another's lives, no getting in each other's face. And then we go home and feel, I feel alone. That's because you're alone. Like you're right about that. But you're alone because when they asked you how you were, you said, I'm fine. And then you followed up with busy because you were afraid they were going to ask you to go eat dinner. We're not fine. We just don't think anybody cares enough to hear the question, the answer. That's not vibrant community. That is group psychosis. Vibrant community is full of energy and enthusiasm to get involved in one another's lives and actually get up in one another's business. It spends the time to earn the right to admonish one another and say, hey, I think we've got a problem here. Can we talk about it? That's more than just a meeting. 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul is writing to the church about the church. Those are awkward letters, okay? Writing to you about you. And he writes this in 1 Thessalonians 5.14. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. And then he has to be patient with them all. Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. Who's he talking to? He's talking to those in the body of Christ to help one another. We tolerate the idle, we avoid the faint-hearted, we walk past the weak and we're irritated with them all. He's saying it's the exact opposite of how I want you to interact one with a vibrant community does not do that. Here's the community test for me, for you. If you did something remarkably stupid, like life wrecking, okay, 
Is there anybody in your circle who would take you aside and admonish you? If not, you have some work to do to build community. Because short of somebody in your life who can speak into your life and offer correction, you really are alone. Sometimes the slightest bit of, of admonition can chart somebody's life differently. Like just a little word. We were pastoring in Cincinnati, and we had friends who had lived next door to us who uh, we had led to the Lord, and they moved to another area of town. We're a little bit out of disconnect with them and didn't see them that much. And all of a sudden, I heard that the husband was meeting with a divorce attorney. And I, that's all I knew. And, and so when I learned that, I, I went right over to the house. And I'm like, it's like, why are you here? I'm like, we're going for a walk. We go for a little walk. I said, somebody told me you're meeting with a divorce attorney. He goes, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to file a divorce this week. He's like telling me this like he's telling me he's going to stop and get a hamburger. And I stopped him. I, Wait, you, you're getting divorced? We had won him and his wife both to the Lord. He said, yeah. I said, okay. Has anybody told you that, like, I, I understand you. I know enough about your marriage to know that there are no biblical grounds for, for divorce here. He goes, it's just, he goes, it's just personality. I said, okay. You do understand this is incompatible with having said yes to Jesus. And I remember him, he stopped and looked at me and went, oh, like it never entered his mind. I said, so what are you going to do? He goes, I guess I'm not going to do that. Like that little bit of admonition, of correction to that guy, you know how easy it would have been to just say, well, we'll just pray for them. I'm just going to lean back. We don't want to mess with them. Don't want to get in their life. You earn that right over time. But when you earn it, you can admonish people in their hour of crisis, and they can do the same for you. Exercise vibrant community. Exercise vibrant. Third big word would be community. Thank you. Brian, Brian, it's the third word, but you were there, man. I think the fourth word, more of you would join you, but there's only three. Community. Community is closely related to the idea of communion. We have made communion a noun. We take communion. We, we, that's it. It's communion. It's a thing. It's a little wrapper with, you know, that, that's communion. No, we receive communion emblems. We are in communion with God. We are in communion or common union with him, and we are also in communion at some level with other people. But most of us have lowered our expectations of community so far that what we describe as community has no relation to being in communion with someone. We refer to places or groups of people as communities. We say things like, I just moved into the community. You don't move into common unity. That's a different thing. You can live in a spot for a long time and not be in common unity with anyone. You're not in community. What we are calling community most often is at best fond proximity. People I like that I'm near. I'm in community with them. But your promised community is more than just people you like. It is people who will get into your life and help you follow Jesus in a way that you would not had they not spoken into your life. What we call community is what normally happens among friends over time, which is why we've heard people say, yeah, you know what, I've got more community at the bar than I do in my own church. No, you have fond proximity. You like each other and you're in the same spot and you're drinking. 
So your defenses are down, and it feels like you've found something you can... What you really have found there is not real. It's not based on the idea of communion or common unity. You cannot separate true community and walking with God. The ultimate expression of community was meant to be among believers. It is supposed to be the most undeniable marker of the church, common unity. John 13, 34, and 35. Jesus says... A new commandment I give you. You can almost see the disciples all leaning in. Oh, we got a new one. He's going to tell us something new. Everybody lean in. What is this? He says that if you love one another, just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one He's like, this is how they're going to measure you. It's going to have nothing to do with the size of your congregation, how many people you gather. It's going to have nothing to do with the building. It's going to have nothing to do with the logo. It's going to have to do with marketing. It's not even going to have to do with the outreach. It has everything to do with how you treat one another. It will be the drawing card. And if they walk in and they go, it's like the bar minus beer. They're not seeing true community. They're seeing fond proximity, which you can get in more convenient places and later on a Sunday. Why would you not go get it there rather than get it here? There are a lot of things that we need to be good at as a church. There just are a lot of things that we need to get better at. But what did he say we should be known for? Our love for one another. Think about what are markers of congregations. Like how, what are they known? Some are known for their preaching. Some are known for their worship, some are known for their buildings, some are known for their outreach programs, their theology. All of these are important and good, but they are far down the list of what Jesus said would identify his people to others. He said we would be known, recognized, peculiar because of the intense love that we have for one another. It's another way of saying we would be recognized for our willingness to get involved in one another's lives and stay there even when it gets hard. When the church approaches one another with that kind of love, it changes lives faster than any preaching, worship, theology, building, or program ever would. One of the people that I was really happy to be with for a little bit this week while we were in California was the executive pastor from Jesus Culture, Becky Johnson. Sat with uh, Becky and another member of their executive team and talk for, for a while. Becky and Derek are both on staff there, and uh, they're just fantastic folks. She's a great leader. He's just a tremendous worship leader. And we sat down, and I asked her, I said, how did you get here? Like, you know, she's 34, she's got three kids, and, and like, how did you end up doing this? And she laughed, and she said, it starts back in Indiana where I was raised by wolves. So what do you mean? She said, my family was a train wreck. They were, they were just a mess. She goes, frankly, they, they kind of still are. But at 15, she said, I was going so far off track that even my family that was off track said, she's way off track. And my mother told me, if you don't get your act together, I'm going to send you to church with Aunt Kim, which was a fate worse than death. She said, Aunt Kim was my weird aunt that would greet you by speaking in tongues. She said, Aunt Kim was my weird aunt that when she'd go to give you a hug, you realized she'd anointed you with oil. She said, Aunt Kim was just wacky. And she said, I couldn't imagine what that church must be like. But as time went on, even at 15, Becky said, 
I was so unchained that my mom said, that's it, you are going to church with Aunt Kim. So she said, I'd go to church with Aunt Kim, and I would sit there, she said, with my, my hair spiked up and my black studded bracelets on and my headphones on and my black eyeliner and all my heavy jewelry, and I'd smell like weed. And at 15, I would just sit there going, I'm going to do everything I can just to get out of here alive. Little Vineyard Church in Indiana, she said, every Sunday, the pastor would, would amen, go straight to the door, greet everybody as they left. And uh, she said, I would avoid him like the plague. I, she goes, I thought my body language was saying, leave me alone. But I was doing all I could, and she said, I would sneak by with groups of people. I'd do whatever I could to not engage with this guy. I didn't want to have anything to do with him. She said, one Sunday, I waited too long, and I was the last person in the auditorium. There's nobody to sneak out with. I can't wait till he's talking to somebody. I've got to walk the gauntlet of this pastor. So she said, I put my headphones on. I cranked them up to 11 so you could hear them even when, you know, it's not, uh, you're not wearing them. She said, I smell like marijuana. I just, I look awful on purpose. And she said, I, I'm going to just burst by him. She said, as I go by, he reaches out and he grabs me. And he leans in and he pulls off one of my my headphones, and he says to me, if you were my daughter, I would be so proud of you. She said, I barely made it to the car. She said, I got in the car, and I'm just weeping. She says, because I know I'm a train wreck, and my entire family is a train wreck, and nobody has ever said anything about being proud of me. She said, so I started going back with crazy Aunt Kim. And she said, I kind of got adopted by the old people in the church. I didn't press her on exactly what she thought old was, but it's her story, you know. She said the older people would take me out to dinner. The older people would grab me and put me in their car when I smelled like weed. The older people would just care for me. And she said, I went to my boyfriend, and I'm like, you've got to go to this church. He said, I don't want to go to a church. She said, no, no, it's unlike anything you've ever seen. So he comes. He plays in a metal band. His hair is just huge, long. A guy walks up to him, grabs him by the face. She said, I thought he was going to kiss him. She goes, this is the weirdest thing I've ever seen. He leans in. He says, I think you're a, like David. You're going to be a worship leader. They're 15 and 16 at this point. That's Derek. That's her husband. They come to the Lord. They get their life together. They get married. They've got three kids. They're both in full-time ministry. Because somebody took a chance on this kid and said, I'm proud of you. That is the kind of effect, affection, and caring for one another in the church. That's the signpost we're supposed to be giving. The identifying characteristic of the people of God is not the building they gather in. It's not the worship style. It's not the preaching. It is this, that by this, this love, they will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's it. So how do we get there? Sounds a little heavy and guilt drive, doesn't it? It's like, uh, now we've got to work at it. Because our hearts can't afford to do this out of obligation. We can't afford to feign community because we feel guilty because we haven't been that way. You ever really tried to go deep with somebody and they didn't have the same desire for community that you did and, and it felt like rejection? It's the worst. First time Kelsey and I went out. Uh, I asked her out when she was in a phone booth. Some of you don't even remember phone booths. But uh, she was on the phone at the time, 
uh, I think talking to another boy. I'm not totally sure about that, but I think that was the case. So uh, I'm out in the lobby of the dorm, and I write, will you go to dinner with me on Friday? I give two blanks, yes or no. Slid it through the door. She takes it. She reads it. If I remember right, you asked if there was a maybe, didn't you? All right, there is no maybe. Slide it back through it like yes or no, okay? Some of you have been in that situation where you've reached out to people, tried and build community, and they, they have not reciprocated. And there is not enough fortitude in the human heart to take that kind of rejection over and over and over again. So we build walls because we can't hack it. There's a band that, that I, I love from Cincinnati. We'll, we'll give Cincinnati a shout out today. It's the only time we will reference them. The, the rest of the day, they are nothing to us. But right now, this band called Over the Rhine from Cincinnati. I don't know if you know them or not. Uh, very melancholy. If you're depressed, don't listen, okay? Because they'll take you down a rabbit hole. But uh, very, very just great writing. And they've got a write, uh, they've, got, they've got a song about trying to build community and people not reciprocating. And it says, uh, I won't pray this prayer with you unless we both kneel down because I don't want to waste good wine if you won't stick around. Some of you, that hit. You're like, oh, I've been there. I've been there. I feel like I've laid my heart out there and people walk by. How do we get to that New Testament level of community? We've got to look at how it took place in the early church to figure out how we do it here, okay? Because just howdy and shake and be friendly doesn't cut it. The New Testament community sprung out of a prayer meeting that involved common struggle, common hope, and common love for God. Community actually springs out of praying together. We tend to think of the Gospels as the story of Jesus, and then Acts as the story of the early church. But Jesus appears in the book of Acts in his resurrected body, and he promises them a baptism of power in this encounter they can't imagine, and then he ascends into the clouds. Now, there's a ton that goes on in the first 10 verses of the book of Acts. It's like, you got to read it about four times to get it all. But then he just disappears into the sky. And they're told by angels, he will come back like he went up. No timeline given. How long did they stand? For real. Like today? Is he coming back? When? But eventually they, they wander off. The person that they followed has just floated into the sky. How do you build a community when the thing that held you together just disappeared into the ethernet? Family skating, family skating party? Raise money for a building program so we're all in collective debt together? Like how, do you, how do you build community in that situation? Do you fabricate it or do you do the last thing that he told you to do? You do the last thing he told you to do. You wait in prayer for power and let God build what he builds in that environment. Acts 1, 12 to 14. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they had entered, they went into the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas, the son of James. He probably used that for the rest of his life. Remember when you write down Judas, son of James, not that Judas, the other Judas. 
And all these were together in one accord, devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. What God was about to do on the earth in building community came from a prayer room, not a boardroom. That's where it came from. Now, we need boardrooms. We need strategy. But no one has ever legislated or masterminded a vibrant community in the sense of a church. It has always been born in prayer. The community that God had on, my, on his mind when he said, on this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against, the community that he had in mind was one that prayed together before it did anything else together. Now, I've said it before, that the bridge is a bit of a laboratory of sorts. We're going to try things. And some of them are going to work, which is to say that some of them won't. Okay? And we're going to try things that we maybe even don't have great experience in. But we have great experience in some things that aren't even necessary. So even the disciples, with a front row seat to Jesus' ministry, when they realized the time was drawing nigh, they said to him, can you teach us to pray? They could have said, can you teach us to preach? You're like a really pretty good preacher. Can you t the walk on water thing, can you teach us that? They said, no, 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 can you teach us to pray? Because they understood that when he prayed and engaged with the Father, things happened. And they said, if we don't have that, we're not going to build anything. Acts 2, 1 through 4, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided Tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. That group goes on to change the known world as a community, but the community came from prayer, not from deciding to be a community with a little prayer on the side. It literally came out of corporate prayer. The New Testament community wasn't just born out of prayer. The New Testament community presented faith to trials. When they encountered trials, they presented faith. As I mentioned earlier, I spoke to a lot of pastors this week who are struggling and continue to struggle. And the idea that eventually it will get better never materialized. And they're grieving and they're, they're wondering why. In some cases, it's because their own people or their body did not understand how to present faith in a time of trial. The community was not equipped to struggle together. And once the community was out of sight, it was out of mind, and suddenly the trial became the controlling narrative in people's lives. This should not be a hard sell, but I'll have to say it. You will face trials. It's not just a statistical likelihood. It's a fact. Some people try and play the odds, and they lose, because there are trials in everybody's life. The latter part of John 16 marks an interesting turn in the lives of the disciples, because suddenly they have understanding they didn't have before. And in 1630, they said, we now know all things, and you do not need to, we do not need to question you. In other words, we believe you are who you say you are. We believe that you came from God. What a moment. They pull up a chair and say, okay, we don't have any questions. Then they have a question. They asked about the future. And John, Jesus answered them, verses 31 and 32. Do you now believe? 
Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to your own home. You'll leave me alone, yet I'm not alone. The Father is with me. I have said these things to you that in me you might have peace. Because in the world, you're going to have tribulation. Take heart, I've overcome the world. When he says in the world, you're going to have tribulation, he's not just talking about the end times. He's talking about right now. And the silence from the, from the disciples is almost deafening. It's like, wait, we finally acquiesce and give you our full embrace and you start with a story about trouble? You're like the worst motivational speaker ever. Let me just say, if you have not encountered trials, we are so happy for you. We also do not think it's going to last. The circumstances are against you, and Jesus himself said you're going to encounter tribulation. For those that Jesus was teaching, this was not a far-off experience. Not too long after the ascension, they began to encounter trials that they never encountered when they were following Jesus when he was on the earth. By Acts 4, Peter and John, who have no arrest record, have no, like, their license has no points on it. These guys have never been in trouble. By Acts 4, they're thrown in jail. And it actually says the only reason they weren't kept in jail was they couldn't find a legal way to charge them. So it's literal harassment. What would be the common response to us among friends? If one of us, if our display of faith caused us to be thrown in jail, how would we respond to one another? Well, you must have done something. You don't just get thrown in jail. Or, well, if you, if you didn't do anything, maybe you should just back off. But can you dial it down? Can you not talk about Jesus? Can you just be kind? Wait till people ask questions? Like, is there, we would talk someone into a more rational presentation in the face of danger. What did they do in the book of Acts? What did this community that was born in prayer do? They prayed, but not the prayer that you would think they would pray. They prayed, now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak the Lord in boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They said, okay, Lord, we ask now that they, we've undergone trial as a community, help us be more bold. You need a community that will help face your trials with faith. And not with shrinking back. Now, to be honest, the topography of the land had changed since they made these commitments to Jesus. Since they told him, we'll follow you anywhere, and he went up, it's a different world. When most of them said to Jesus, said yes to Jesus, they could see Jesus. Now the thing that they said yes to had disappeared, they had to spur one another on. I mean, yes, Jesus said we would have trouble, and they were having trouble. Under times of trials, all deals are off, aren't they? No. Maybe deals are off, but covenants are not. And they had made a covenant with the Lord and with one another. Friends, we've got to build a community that helps us face trials together by presenting faith and not fear. When I come in and I am hurting in body, and I say, will you pray for me? I don't want anybody to say, Lord, if it's his time, take him now. Okay, don't present fear to trial, present faith. That's what New Testament community does. It comes together in prayer, it puts faith to trial, it values people over possessions. Following passage I'm about to read frightens people, we will read it anyway. 
Acts 4, 32 to 35. Now the full number of people who were believed, who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things belonged to him or was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as they had need. So why does that scare people? Because we have stuff, right? We have stuff. And if they held everything in common, what about our stuff? What do I own a home? Is this say, I've, I've literally, I've had people say, is, is this an indication that Jesus was a communist? Everybody put everything in the pot, right? It's a big commune. No, Jesus was not a communist. Uh, the New Testament church was not a commune. Uh, Acts chapter 9, Peter goes and stays in Joppa with Simon the Tanner at his house. People owned property. The people who owned things, some of them sold it to give to the greater of the common good. Others used it for the good of the kingdom. But in either case, it belonged to the Lord. So if you own your home, you use it for the kingdom. If he tells you to sell your home, then you sell your home. But either way, what you have is used for the community. The Lord doesn't require that you sell everything, but he does require that you recognize that everything you have is his, and then you use it accordingly. For those of you that have accumulated possessions, and let's just be honest, that's all of us relative to the world. We are rich. Take a trip around the world. See how people live in other countries. We have stuff. For those of us, we may feel like we have nothing, but we really do. What needs within the body can we meet with what we have? It is a mark of community. I believe some of you have distinct needs that you have not let people know out of shame, but you don't know what you're going to do. And I believe in some cases the resources to meet those needs are already in this room. And that when we get into real community one, with one another, we begin to help one another on a practical level that causes people who come into the fellowship to go, those people love each other. They love each other and they take care of one another. You've got to be ready to provide when others have a need and you've got to be ready to receive when the Lord sends help. And some of you have a harder time receiving than you do providing. But your receiving from others within the body is literally a mark of community and an appeal from those who are not a part of the body to say, I want to be like them. When real community, birthed in prayer, meets trials with faith, comes up against need, finds a way to meet the need, often within itself, when those things happen, we become different than what the world calls community. One last thing. I'm asking if Jenna would just come, if the worship team would come. New Testament community, welcome the outsider. Really did welcome the outsider. Greek mythology tells a story of the mother of Achilles, who wanted to make her son immune to any danger. So she held him by the heel and dipped him in the river, river Styx. And when he came up, he was impossible to be hurt 
except for that little part on his ankle where his heel where she dipped him, from which we get the phrase Achilles heel, which means the one place where we are vulnerable. And everybody has one. Here is the Achilles heel for community. It's once we find it, we tend to close ranks. Once we're a part of it, we build our community. Now let's build a fence and build a gate. Right? How many times have you driven by the sign, welcome to our new community, and when you get there, you are really not welcome to that community. You gotta have a code to get into that community. That is not how the New Testament community welcomed people. There's great precedent for this. Acts 9, 26, 27. Understand now, Paul at this point had been persecuting Christians and had been killing people who were a part of the church. But he has this encounter with the Lord and he comes to Jesus. And in Acts 9, 26, 27 said, when he'd come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. There's like so much packed into that verse. He just, excuse me, excuse me, can I, you know, sneak in, get a donut here? And they were afraid of him because they didn't believe he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. The early church just didn't welcome strangers. It welcomed those who they had had struggle with before. It was a community, but there was not this high wall around it. So our yes for community is a yes to one another, and it is a yes to those who the Lord sends. And when the Lord sends them, they should sense something different here than they felt at the bar. And that yes to community is a yes for eternity. It really is. I want more within our body of people than fond proximity. I want more than coming and just sitting with people who we happen to like and can tolerate. I want us involved in one another's lives. You're like, okay, well, what's the vision for this? I have to convince you of the principle or the vision doesn't matter. The vision's going to come. Some of you are gonna have a part of building the vision. But the principle is community, vibrant community is based in prayer. We are going to be a praying community or we won't be a community at all. Just wasn't going to share this, but it's on my heart too. You know, we, we have wrestled with space. Where do we meet? And, uh, you know, sometimes it feels like this just doesn't work at all and sometimes it all kind of halfway works and, and uh, so we have pushed off the idea of landing in any space just because it's expensive and it's hard we may end up finding a place where we can pray together and still continue to meet on weekends in what's kind of you know makeshift facilities but if we don't gather to pray we're not a community it's just fond proximity that is not enough. Stand with me if you would. This morning, I'm going to ask you to bow your heads for a moment. I just want to go to the Lord and ask Him to do something in our hearts regarding the pursuit, 
the exercise of vibrant community. Father, we ask in this little fledgling church family that you are drawing together that we would do the hard work of getting in one another's lives, picking up the phone, extending invitations, making ourselves vulnerable, like we have a hundred times before and maybe it's blown back in our face, but we say, God, if we don't have community, we don't have anything here. If we don't grow close to one another, why would anyone have any interest in what you say you've done in our lives? So Father, as a church family, we say yes to community and yes to one another. As a church family, we ask that we would have the fortitude to build what it is you said would be attractive to people, which is relationships of love. This morning, the Lord is challenging some of you to take a step of interaction with somebody else, even before you leave today, where you go, okay, I kind of know you, I don't know you, I do know you, but we've been in the same row for two months. We got to figure this out. I want to know you. I I like you. Yes, no, pick one. There is no maybe. And the Lord is going to honor that and community is going to start to grow. Or we can walk away from it and have what we have and it's not enough. I don't say this in a berating way. I'm, I, I want you to see what this could be and it could be beautiful. It is. There are pockets of it already. But it can be beautiful. Let's worship together.
Father, we take to heart the words of your Son, that by our love that others will know us. So I ask that you would spur hearts to connect. Father, I pray that the determination of our heart would be to know each other well, to love one another well, to spur one another, to serve one another well. Go with us this morning. Pray a blessing on those that are watching online and not able to be with us. Let the Spirit of Jesus be seen through our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Go Chiefs.